everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Madeleine Morris. Um, welcome very much this evening to Crime and Punishment, which is uh, a co-production of the Wheeler Centre and the Arts uh, and Arts House. This evening, we're going to be discussing issues of crime, punishment, prison, rehabilitation, criminality, and justice. So I am your host for this evening. We're just going to let a few more people filter in, but we better get kicking off, otherwise we'll never get out of here. And there are so many things to discuss this, is this evening. We're going to have to kick it along. Um, I host the uh, Question Time series for the Wheeler Centre. And by day job, that's by night, by day, I'm a reporter for the 7.30 program on the ABC. So. Um, this is really appropriate to be having this discussion this week because uh, never, I, that I can remember in the news cycle, if we had a more staggering reminder of the precarious balance that, there, that we needs to be struck in the criminal justice system as we watch the horrors of what has gone on in the Dondale Centre in the Northern Territory. But in truth, these matters are never really far from our minds. Here in Victoria, we've been discussing over the past couple of months the rise in youth crime, um, the crimes of carjacking, home invasions, how best to deal with that. On the national stage, we're looking at terrorism and whether we should be changing our laws to keep people in prison who've served their time, but who we think aren't safe to release into the community. So these issues are never far from our mind, and particularly if any of you have ever been either involved in crime or punishment yourselves, then this will be something that is never too far from your mind. So, some of the things that we're going to be talking about this evening, what is the purpose of punishment? Is it to make law-abiding members of society feel catharsis, or is it to change behaviour? What role does rehabilitation and should rehabilitation play in our prison system? Dostoevsky wrote 150 years ago in Crime and Punishment, the question is, am I a monster? Or am I myself a victim? And what if I am a victim? And those questions are still as relevant today. So we're going to be discussing these questions uh, today with our panellists, as well as all of you. Um, our audience today includes some members of the chat. Uh, and I can see some cast members of the chat, I should say. And I, could see, I can see that a number of you recognising you um, have also been to see the chat, which, is, which, which was a fantastic performance um, just an hour ago. Great to see John and James there as well. So um, I will introduce our panellists in a moment, but before we begin, I'd like to pay my respects uh, to the elders of the Kulin Nation and acknowledge, the, acknowledge that we are meeting on their land today. I pay my respect to their elders past and present and to the elders of any other communities who may be with us today. And in particular, Jack Charles, actor, musician, Bunurong elder and a national treasure who has spent more days than he probably cares to remember, detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Peter Norden is our second panellist sitting next to him. He's an adjunct professor at RMIT. He has more than 30 years experience working in the criminal justice system, the social system, and he was also the senior chaplain at Pentridge Prison, which is some of the experiencing that he'll be drawing on today. Debbie Kilroy is a lawyer, she's just down here, and she's the founder of Sisters Inside, which fights for the human rights of incarcerated women and their children. And to date, she's the only former female prison inmate who's been admitted to the bar in Queensland. <laughs> J 
just next to her is Susan Shepherd. Um, Susan had a long career as a dominatrix and she's currently writing a book on the sex industry as well as studying for a degree in literature. And she's also spent time in prison and is now a passionate prison activist. And JR or James Brennan is a former creative producer, director and composer as well as a former parole officer in New South Wales. And he is the co-creator of The Chat on whose set that we are beginning to uh, sitting today. And a big round of applause for James, for those of you who saw the chat this afternoon. It's a fantastic performance. Oh, okay. I'm banging? All right. <laughs> um, so while I do that, while I disrobe, um, why don't we begin with you, Jack? Because as I was saying in my introduction, we have never had a more pertinent reminder of the difficulties of our prison system, our criminal justice system than this week. What did you think when you saw those images coming out of Dondale? Oh, I wasn't surprised. Um, I think that's probably been happening in those locations and others around there for a long time. And I think that's probably the most important thing to acknowledge about that, is that that's nothing new. Um, and it's shocking, but it's not surprising. And Jack? Uh, Northern Territory, the new deep south. Uh, that's, what, that's my feeling on that too. Uh, they have this policy, Mr Giles, and um, the average, I'm not my tea apparently. Um, uh, Is everyone hearing Jack okay? <laughs> no. Uh, All right, well. we'll just pass on the... All right. Yeah. Um, uh, I believe that um, uh, Adam Goods, I mean, not Adam Goods, uh, Mr. Giles and uh, and uh, all the members of his party should uh, uh, should resign their position uh, because this is the rush too quick. You know, as much as the rush of Mr. Abbott's to uh, to, to to get uh, white people to vote uh, yay or nay on their behalf in regards to changing the constitution and reconciliation, etc., it's a push too soon. We need they need to have a royal commission independent of Northern Territory. So what's happening now is a whitewash. It's, it's useless for us. And, and I mean, so you weren't shocked when you saw those images of what were being done to those children? Oh, no, 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 it was the same thing. I think the rest of the community was extremely yeah, shocked, same, but, but you same know. The same thing happened, uh, well, in the home that I lived in, if you were naughty, you were made to put on a pair of boxing gloves and uh, uh, locked in the gym uh, with a bigger boy whose job was to bash some sense into you. And that, uh, and most of them bashed me, but there was one who didn't, he refused to do it. So I took my first acting class in that gym privately. He said, uh, listen, uh, I'll, I'll bash uh, you know, my glove against uh, the other glove and uh, they'll hear it outside because they're listening and uh, we want you, to, we want you to go out crying, okay? Mm. So I acted as though I'd been bashed and things like, but that was common practice, you know? If you ran away from Bayswater Boys Home and, and they caught you and sent you back there, uh, the bigger fellas bashed you for that, and they would have been paid some, some, uh, you know, something for that. But how many years ago was that, Jay? Oh, many years ago. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's still happening. So, Debbie, Debbie, when you saw um, what was going on uh, in Four Corners, what they, the footage that they showed, was that of any surprise to you? Oh, no, no surprise at all. But before I do continue to speak, I do want to acknowledge that we are on. Aboriginal land, always have been, always will be. I want to acknowledge elders past and present. I want to acknowledge Uncle Jack and other Aboriginal people who are here today. Because um, we as white fellas have to 
understand and know and gain knowledge of the invasion of this country and the fallout of that and what we see the fallout from that invasion and stealing land from the first peoples of this country is a clear indication of the trauma and the outcome of that theft when we walk into our prison system. So when that footage was released, like we've seen that footage and those images before, Koori Mail had them on the front page of the paper a couple of years ago, but it's interesting that, you know, um, a reputable mainstream uh, media outlet being four corners, pieces all the bits together with a story and then white Australia sees it and there's white outrage. This happens in our prisons every day, in our youth prisons and our adult prisons. This is not something new to any of us that have lived in the prison or who actually go in and out of prisons, you know, and those who work and cover up the violence. Because prisons are perpetrators of violence. That's the actual reality and that's why we need to abolish prisons. Anyone put in a prison will be traumatised by violence, physical violence, sexual violence, emotional violence psychological violence. That is the reality. And if that's how we want to live, well, then you cop it on your back because that's why young people and adults, when they're released, are actually in a worse state than when they were first put in there. And it actually fails us all as a community. Peter, what, what is the purpose? If we are seeing people coming out of prison in a worse state than they were when they went in, as, as Debbie said, I mean, first of all, do you agree um, that that is the case? Um, and if that is the case, then where are we going wrong? Yes, well, you know, we've got a huge prison population expanding at three times the rate of the national population in Australia. For the last 20 years, it's been increasing at three times the rate of the national population. But what happens from, you know, when you have that prison experience is that you get more and more disconnected. I mean, one of the first things that happens in prison if you uh, break even small regulations, you lose your contact visits. You just get a box visit behind glass with a telephone. And therefore you lose your connection to the significant others. Uh, and you, therefore when, you, when you're released, you're, you're not going to be connected. So if the prisons were really about trying to prevent uh, re-offending, uh, you'd be building those connections. Uh, you'd be dealing with the issues in the community that would have led someone to commit a crime. But, you know, I was up in the Northern Territory last year and uh, they just opened an 1,100-bed prison with a population of 200,000. And it cost, I can't remember how much, it cost hundreds of millions to build and something like 60, 70, 80 million each year to run. I was doing a crime and punishment forum for NAJA, the legal aid group up there. If they could get just one extra million a year, uh, or one of my graduate students was there working with family conflict, if the organisation she was working with had an extra million dollars a year, they could do so much more. But instead, huge resources, not just in the Territory, but around the country are being poured into building and operating prisons, right. just like they've done in the southern states, as Jack referred to before, Florida, Texas. And they're now the pendulum swinging. And surprisingly, in those conservative southern states, they're starting to look for ways of limiting their prison population, partly because it's cost them so much. Mm. California uh, declared bankruptcy a few years ago because of the prison industry. The state declared, sorry, just that, repeat that. California declared bankruptcy because of the cost of their prison they system. They were spending more on uh, the, pr the prison industry than they were on higher education. That's directly from the uh, from the American uh, uh, jail show that you see on television. 
and that. Uh, corrections people have gone to these organisations overseas where they're uh, selling these products, uh, you know, restraining chairs and other means and that, and our government is doing this. And, and for my observation, it seems they're, they're jailing all our young offenders, all our young people up there. You know, if you're Aboriginal and your mum sends you out to buy some bread or some milk, you can be very well picked up without any paperwork and shoved into an institution and that's your journey into crime. Uh, you know, into experiencing uh, prison life and this behaviour that's uh, uh, been allowed to be and is condoned by the government up there. And uh, Mr Giles, it's behaving like a despot from my observations and by the untruths when he was pulled up and questioned about seeing that footage, he lied and then he has to backtrack and that, things like that. It's disappointing as an elder like me to see that our next future generation of the young ones up there in the Northern Territory being jailed and their mental imbalance uh, developing from this. Okay, well you've just brought up a theme there that I really wanted to, to touch on tonight. And, and everyone, this is a, a forum where you can put your hand up at any time and ask a question. You can put your hand up at any time and make a comment. So please do so. We've got a couple of people with roving mics coming around. I'll come to you in a minute, sir, um, because I just did want to kick off with what Jack has brought up just there. And that is indeed the journey into crime. And I think the recidivism rates in, in Victoria at this point are 44%. So 44% of uh, people who serve time are back in jail within two years. So clearly something is not working there. The, the journey into crime is well down the track at that stage. And the question is, where does it begin? And, and James, I mean, you might have some insight into this as, as someone who worked as a parole officer and sort of juvenile crime and... and you know, I worked with adult prisoners only. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, Many we of do them what presumably we... started off as juveniles, so yeah, yeah, they yeah. did. Um, I mean, what we do know is that sending someone to prison is the strongest indicator that they will go back to prison. That is, we know, the most, the, the most easily identified element that you can do to someone to make them go to prison is to send them to prison before. So that is one massive issue, I think, that is not really acknowledged in corrections generally, in criminal justice generally. You know, it's, there's these elements of deterrence and punishment, rehabilitation, sure, but actually that fact alone is enough to make one reconsider it. Mm. And why, why is that? What? Well, if they're going to go back to jail as a result of you sending them to jail, is mm, yeah. certain, surely um, corrections in every state in Australia are trying to reduce recidivism. That's what you get told as a parole officer. You have even a, I mean, you have a, um, a, a goal, I think it's reduced by 10%, which is completely unrealistic, I should say, mm. I mean, in the job itself. But my, I mean, that's sort of a bit of an abstract. I think it's really something that's embedded in our understanding of criminal justice in general. You know, how, how much can you shine a shit, you know? And is there something so, there's something so clearly problematic about our criminal justice system that it's really hard to know how much we can improve it in the current version. I mean, my particular belief about why people are going to prison is a whole complex range of issues, you know, mental health, housing, um, drug use, violence in communities. These are the things that are helping people be sent to prison. Apart from the often um, outrageous convictions that people get, like Jack would said, which are often unfounded in some areas especially, 
the fact that the criminal justice system has been heaped with this job of managing these social issues is a problem in itself. Mm. So, but I mean, if we talk about the, if we just stick on the juvenile theme, I mean, is, is the initial problem that those, lots of those kids who end up in, on a criminal path um, are the result of these complex social issues that you're talking about? I and, think so. And yeah. they're not getting what they need in prison. In fact, the words that I hear said quite a lot are they're just getting to be better criminals in prison. Is that, is that the issue? I think it's really, I mean, it's something you need to look at case by case and different people get different things out of prison. I mean, Peter Will has had lots of personal contact with people and I have also Peter for a lot longer and they, pe people get different things out of prison. Some people re retreat and sort of survive. Some people um, turn to, um, you know, fitting in and stuff and that certainly can lead to mm. more criminalised behaviour. Mm. It criminalises them. That's what it does. I mean, you, you, how, you, how you sort of define what happens to them is really is case by case, but it, they're criminalised. So the, the community expectation, though, is that people will be punished. So this week, for example, in my day job, I've been out um, in some of the western suburbs of Melbourne talking to people, I'll come to you in a second, Debbie, talking to people who have uh, been going on patrols um, because they're so worried about carjackings and um, the new space of home invasion. So, you know, really nice, ordinary people, live in a very na happy neighbourhood, otherwise they are terrified. And they are going out in their cars at night time looking for people, looking for youths who appear to be up to no good. You talk to them about the change in bail laws in Victoria, which was enacted recently, which um, is a presumption of, of bail um, for people who are in prison and also um, decriminalises breaching bail and they are furious. They say that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. They say we, that sends the wrong message. We should be sending these kids away and giving them a lesson. Um, Debbie, and then we'll come to you, John, as well. I think, I think people think that if you send me to a youth prison, you're teaching me a lesson a lesson that you think you might be teaching as an adult, but you're not teaching me that lesson at all. You're teaching me to hate authority, to hate adults, to hate society, just hate. You're teaching me to hate. I was first locked up as a kid when I was 13 for wagging school. Wagging school. Like, who in this room has wagged school? Did you get locked? Like, it's not a joke. And it, life went downhill because then, after I did my four weeks for that, because I was supposed to be assessed by a psychiatrist back then to see you know, what my issues were and never did. But I was highly traumatised in the youth prison. My father suddenly died. I was blamed for his death by the woman, the matron that ran the place. I was locked in isolation. I was held down by 10 orderlies and given needles on a daily basis to knock me out to sleep. And you want to teach me a lesson to behave myself out here and be part of your society as a child? No, no, no. That doesn't work. You teach children hate and you teach them to believe that they are bad and they are no good and they will act that out. And that's what you're seeing. These are our children, that children for God's sake. Why do we allow abuse of children and punishment in youth prisons when that's what they are? They're violators, perpetrators of horrendous violence. It has to stop. They have to close. We have to start thinking outside the bars about how we treat our children. And I'm talking about probably not your children, children who are living in horrendous poverty have social issues because they have no housing, their parents are struggling, 
There is no employment. They don't have education because the education system is so inflexible to their learning needs. So it's fine to be white, middle class, upper class and fit into all your structures because that's what they're built for, you. Not for kids like us or Aboriginal kids who grew up in poverty and violence and everything else, all those social issues. So when are we going to ensure that we have proper social policy and resources, we do have plenty of resources in this country, we are a very wealthy country, to ensure that no one lives in poverty, no one is homeless, everyone has access to education and health. It ain't rocket science, but you know what? We as a society value property more than our children and people. And we've actually got to start thinking outside. How many cars can you drive? How many houses can you live in? Well, one, I think, because, you know, and if you're lucky enough to have that. We have to stop valuing property over children, because we're talking about children. John's one of the cast members of the chat, for those of you who um, haven't been here today to see it. John, what would you like to say? Yeah, um, yeah I'm part of the chat. And real privilege to be so, you know, like, um, for me, my story, you know, I was institutionalised from when I was 11 in Baltara, you know, I felt belonged, you know, my father got sick when I was nine, you know, I'm, you know, I was the only child, and, and um, I felt, you know, all the attention went to my father, he ended up in hospital, more in than out for 13 years with brain operations and everything, and, so I, I started wagging school the day, you know, the day he went into hospital. I still remember it, you know, and um, that was the first day I wagged school. You know, I'm a single parent now with two boys, and um, well, I've got four teenagers at home living at home, both my sons and their girlfriends, you know, and, um, and it's, it's a battle. <laughs> but I want them to feel what I didn't feel in myself, love, you know, I felt, no, but I, you know, and I understand, you know, I've been a single parent since my boys were in nappies, you know, and um, as a result of, you know, life situations. And I love to try and give that to other people. But for me, when I got locked up in Baltara, I felt, you know, I was scared and fearful at first, but I felt I was accepted, I felt a part of, you know. And now as a parent, I understand children love to, you know, with, Live off their parents uh, and families' you know, attention, whether it's negative or positive. I seek a negative one. My parents were great, you know, but then it became normal for me. I got locked up in Tarana and I was, I felt I belonged, you know. And every time I was getting parole when the parole sentences were starting, I'd run away just before, you know, and I'd come back with longer sentences. No, and I became institutionalised, and I went to Pentridge, Barsby, and then Pentridge. I was fearful, but I was with people on my own. You know, jail saved my life. You know, I'm a recovering drug addict. You know, I, I use drugs to make work, give me confidence and make me feel good, and alcohol. You know. So, and, uh, so what then, in the end, got you out of jail, John? If you were so institutionalised, you felt so at home there. What has made you get out of jail now? I, for me, you know, like I always wrote to my parents, you know, family, and if I had a girlfriend waiting outside, you know, when I get out, I'm going to need a job, get a car, get a licence. My parents didn't bring me up to, you know, wag school, do crime, go to court and go to jail. My parents, you know, they were workers and, you know, they, they provided for me and done good things, you know. 
and I consciously didn't feel right, and I always planned that. But I got to the point within myself, I've had enough. The only thing that was changing for me in my life was the prison sentences were going from months to years. You know, and um, it was, you know, things weren't going too good, they were going worse. But I always had those plans to live life differently. And I heard other people that lived similar lives to myself that were doing that now, and I asked them for help. So you asked you ask for help, okay. So and that's one of the things that came up after the chat this, this, this afternoon was the, the necessary need for, for peers and assistance. Um, I just want to ask you though, I mean, in the play this afternoon, it, it was essentially, for those of you who didn't see it, it's an interview between uh, a prisoner and a parole officer. And you were very aware of the performance. Um, the performance in this case was in, inverted, but with the prisoner playing the parole officer and the parole officer playing the, the prisoner. But it was the performance of the parole. How many times did you go to a parole uh, interview and, and give a performance and say you were going to do something which you had no intention of doing? Like for me, when I had parole interviews, you know, like I had a, like what they called a parole plan six weeks before getting out, then it hits the parole board and then they make a decision. You know, I'm going to go and do things right. And I meant it with all my heart, but I had that little thing in the back of my mind, you know, I'm going to go and catch up with my mates and go and get drunk and do one good robbery and then I'll go and do that other stuff later. Because that's how my brain, my brain was wired. But deep down inside, you know, for me, alcohol and drugs become a problem for me. Um, I've been sober and clean 10 years today. So, uh, and, thank you. And, and I'm proud of it. I'm feeling emotional. You know, look, I'm over six, I'm six foot tall and a half, saturated in tattoos, done over 10 years in prison, adult prison, and all the youth training centres, and I'm having a bit of a soup inside. No, like, and because uh, I'm human, no. But when I went had all these parole plans, I met up with all my heart, and um, and as a result of asking for help, I am a respectable member of the community today. I've got my own little lawnmower business. I'm a single parent with two kids. You know, that's me. You're an actor. No, I'm being myself. <laughs> I'm being myself. You're a performer. For me, and I, with the chat. It's to plant into this, into the minds of other people, plant a seed in the minds of other people. Okay. Once a criminal, always a criminal is alive. We're human beings, we've just made mistakes. And once an addict, always an addict is alive. You know, like, I accept that I am. You know, and I have scarring from my past. You know, and I still have, you know, and I'm scarred, and I'll probably be scarred until the day I die. You know, um, there was a lot of bad things that happened in there. You know, and my, my sons, I've got Aboriginal boys due to a failed rehab romance and um, you know, they're going through their own journey and I feel really powerless, you know, one's just cleared up his court cases. He was locked, he has, he was locked up once for eight days in Parkville and um, pray that he won't go back there but yeah, he's going alright now. You know, my other son's back into football and I'm going to be a granddad. All the stuff I dreamt about is happening, you know, but I feel powerless. They're going to go and live their own experience in their own life, and all I can do is love them and be there for them and let them know the front door's always open. But I have boundaries. Can someone tell me how to, can someone tell me how to uh, follow through with boundaries? <laughs> <laughs>
I've got a four-year-old. I'm already having problems with boundaries. So um, I could do some advice from you. I just want to bring in Susan here and then, sir, I promise I will come to you because we haven't, she's the only panellist we haven't really heard from yet. And, and Susan, John just brought up there um, the issue of addiction, which is such a, a prominent issue in our prison system. When you um, did time, it was to, to feed an addiction. So you might want to talk about that, but I'd just also be very interested in hearing from you what effect going to prison in your later years actually had on you, whether it was rehabilitative, um, whether it was whether you saw it as punishment, whether you felt that you deserved that punishment? Um, There's a lot yes, of questions I, yeah, there. Am I on? <laughs> yeah, you're on, go for it. Um, So was it punishment, you were about to say there before I cut you off, I think that you felt that you did deserve punishment. Well, yes, I did a crime, so I, I, I had to go to prison for that crime. But what this chap here was saying about addiction, um, you know, my feeling about addiction, and it's not a, it's not a unique uh, point of view, um, is that um, it, it numbs pain. And, um, you know, I, I read things and I, I listen to, to, to people and... Um, one of the questions we should be asking is not why the addiction, but why the pain. But we don't ask that question. Were you asked that question in prison? No. <laughs> what? No. Were, were you um, asked the question why the addiction in prison? I wasn't No, because the thing is, by the time you get to the magistrate, for most people, in my case, for example, I'd lost everything before I got to the judge. Mm -hmm. And you're, to be specific, your addiction was in particular, if, if I remember correctly, was a pokey addiction. It was a gambling addiction. Gambling addiction. I hate that word, pokey. Okay. Okay, gambling addiction. So I put a million dollars in 10 weeks into poker machines, and some of it wasn't mine. So I had to go to prison, of course. Um, but um, um, by the time I got to the judge, I'd lost my relationship, my job, my house, my friends, the respect of my colleagues. So by the time I was standing in front of the guy, the judge, it was just to me purely punitive what he was going to do and it happened to be mm -hmm. two years in prison with two years parole. Um, it's one of the worst experiences of my life but not maybe why people would think, just that it's, um, for some people it's just geography. Um, going to prison, if you're doing nothing on the outside and you go to prison and you're doing nothing, that's a big deal. But um, I, I had a good life and I missed it and the experience was um, extremely enervating and almost really killed me, just the sheer boredom and um, um, disinterest of the people in there. And um, you just read stuff when you're outside and you don't actually know, it's say $95,000 to keep a person in prison. The prisoner only gets 5,000 of that a year. You get $5 a day. You eat shit. Um, it's like the Truman Show, you know, there's a, there's a facade with a, a, a sign that says education, but there's actually nothing behind it. Mm -hmm. But you, you say that you felt that you deserved to be punished though, and that well, was the role. I did a crime, so yeah. I deserve to be punished, but yeah. I think that um, if you want to um, fool yourself into thinking that it's a reformatory, it's not. So when I came out, um, it was difficult. You leave with a $160 crisis payment and a green garbage bag. And, um, um, you know, you're, you're in crisis accommodation and you're in transitional accommodation. And the thing is, I studied youth work at one point in a different life that I had, and we talked about this really... Um, 
old-fashioned term called social role valorization, which means a valued social role for every member of the community. This fellow's got one now, you know, like he already said, he feels valued, he feels good. Um, prisoners don't get them. We don't get them. That, that's just a fantasy. And yeah, there's 200 people in Dame Phyllis Frost, 250, 300 capacity maximum. And most of those women are in there for shoplifting, drug crimes. Mm. Um, and many of them have been victims themselves of, of crimes, particularly domestic, domestic abuse. And, yep. and bashings and shit. And, you know, there's a lot of prostitutes in prison. Mm. Um, it's a, you know, but they, do they deserve to be in prison? No, I don't think so. You're bringing up a, a lot of themes there amongst them housing, um, the women who are in prison and, and the reasons that they get there. But this gentleman's very, been very patiently waiting so for a while. So if I can get the microphone back to him, please. Thank you. My name's Mick O'Brien. I first went into a correctional institution when I was 14 years of age. I'm now 73, so that's uh, nearly 60 years of working in corrections. One of the key performance indicators for executives... Sorry, just to be clear, you, you, you work or you were in, you're working in prison? I was in the institution with a group called the Young Christian Students. Okay. And we went in and we related to kids who were the same age as ourselves. Okay. So not as, not as a prisoner? No, I okay. wasn't. Okay, all right. Um, so, as I say, one of the key performance indicators for corrections is that um, people come out of prison no worse than they went in. And that's as high as they put it for the executives of corrections. And uh, unfortunately, um, most people do come out worse than they went in. Mm -hmm. um, I went on from working in prisons as a young person like that with the Young Christian Workers where I visited the um, Youth Offenders Group and uh, the need for legal representation is very important because in one year I organised appeals for 68 young offenders who had appeared in the Magistrates Court without any representation, and all of them received custodial sentences. When I did appeals for those, organising legal representation for them, every one of them then got a non-custodial sentence. Can, Debbie, does that still happen? Um, it still happens, many people and it is worse now. When Haddon Story and Durack first set up the Legal Aid Commission, it was a bigger form of the Fitzroy Legal Service, of which I was a foundation member. Mm -hmm. But then when it got kennetised and uh, Jane Ward was there, legal aid started to go downhill and now it is a joke. Okay, thank you. Debbie, so that's still a, a big issue that you deal with, is it? Not, not well, legal representation. representation, absolutely. Well, we know that you know, over 80% of young people in youth prisons are there on remand. So. Um, and then, so say, for example, Queensland, where I come from, um, the biggest women's prison at Brisbane Women's at Wacol has about 270 women, massively overcrowded. Over 50% of them are either on remand or for breaches of, uh, minor breaches of their parole. 
So about 45% are actually sentenced women serving sentences. So, you know, we could reduce the prison population overnight by getting women out on bail as well as, you know, stop the breaches because they forgot to go to a parole appointment, for example. You know, if you're homeless, you actually forget what day it is and you're more interested in a feed than go out and see your parole officer. Yes, sir. Um, I'd like to make a comment that I think the sort of geopolitical thing is where we should be going. We should be looking at what Sweden's doing. We should be looking around the world what's going on. What's it, Sweden doing? Well, you know, in the 60s, um, the Dutch and the Swedes were on about this idea that prison wasn't just a place to lock people up. But the bigger things that I'm talking about is things like economics. Why are none of these big companies paying tax? Why do we have a Prime Minister who can't even say sorry to the Aboriginal community? We had a Prime Minister who said that homeless people, his policy was, it's their choice. We've got a systemic problem in society. We've got to look at the big picture, why people are, you know, are causing crime. And I don't want to sound too left-wing here, but capitalism eats its children. We advertise crap, we turn our people into crap, and if you go on Facebook and you hear the people, they talk about criminals as garbage. And so they become, they become garbage. Now, this incident on um, the TV about these young people, the Northern Territory, there was more um, outrage about uh, a gorilla that was shot because these people are out of sight and out of mind. Is that really true? There's been a fair amount of outrage today, uh, to date this week, I think, about the treatment of the kids in the Dondale. I would say, yes, 10% of the intellectuals got up, a few people, but the what I call the um, public TV set, you know, they're not interested. They'd rather watch The Voice or something else. Mm -hmm. there's, this, there's this denial of intellectual issues. Peter, if I could just... Oh, sorry, I'll, 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 come, I'll come to you in a second next after Peter. Just this, this separation between um, us and them, is that something that you have come across not only in your work in, as a prison chaplain, but, you know, criminals and non-criminals? Is that something that you've come across um, in your range of, of workers at Jesuit Social Services, just that divide? And, and how, and if that is an issue, is that an, an important issue? Uh, it's in January, it's 40 years since the Brosnan Centre was started, uh, which was January 1977. Uh, John, uh, who spoke earlier, was uh, a resident there for a short time. Uh, look, once you get a criminal record, uh, even in those days, but certainly today, your prospects of employment uh, are pretty limited. You might uh, be lucky with the CFMEU or the MUA, uh, but you're not going to get employment anywhere Malcolm else. Malcolm Turnbull would love to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to add fuel that far. But look, 30 years ago I went to Sweden and Holland and saw successful programs. I'd, I'd, I'd been to the United States and, and England and saw unsuccessful programs. But they're uh, running programs there, as the gentleman suggested. They've got low crime, low reoffending, small imprisonment. Within Australia, though, we've got a lot of diversity. I mean, Queensland, Northern Territory, Western Australia, I mean, what they do with juveniles compared to what Victoria's tried to do over the years, I, I would say, I don't want to praise Victoria too much, but we have a very, very small juvenile detention population. Mm. We want to keep people off remand if they're juveniles, because mm. once you put them there, now sometimes it's necessary, but 
Uh, if you're doing that story, uh, the people uh, who, you know, who are fearful of crime uh, out in that community, Tarnit and company, uh, they would feel that strongly. But the, if you put someone away from their community, away from their family, even for a week or two, that's where it starts. And in Victoria, we know that. Uh, we've got, you know, half the prison population of New South Wales and Victoria. Um, we've got a, a small fraction of the people in juvenile detention in Victoria compared to uh, New South Wales, Queensland, Northern Territory, Western Australia. Uh, I mean, there's things wrong with our system, I'll always say that. But if you get targeted uh, with a criminal record, uh, it's very hard to move on in life. Uh, and that's why in Victoria, diversion programs dealing with complex needs like access to good education. If you did a survey of the Victorian prison system or even the, the, the kids in prison, do they have access to good education, good schools? Uh, have they got prospects for employment? And when you've got social change, particularly with groups coming with refugee background from Africa or from the Middle East, I mean, they need special care to resettle. And, you know, second generation are going to have trauma. Uh, so, uh, and within this uh, African group, there'd be one or two serious offenders there, but there's another group of 50 or 100 that you've got to treat really carefully to avoid them getting drawn in. Mm. Most of those kids are still going to high school every day. And actually, just as you bring up that, I was talking with a South Sudanese um, youth worker yesterday who was, um, and those of you who are familiar with it will be aware that there has been this extremely overblown um, according to the police issue with, with South Sudanese youth getting involved in carjacking. It's not just a South Sudanese issue, it's certainly an islander issue, it's a white... Half of the people who are in incarcerated for that or have been picked up for that are white, if you ask the cops, but that's not the impression that we have. The South Sudanese youth worker that I was talking to was saying a lot of the issues that they have are between cultural divisions in Australia. At, they, the kids go to school, they, they, they get taught that they have rights and that they can... Um, tell their parents what they want to do. That's not the South Sudanese uh, more traditional way. The parents feel disempowered and there's this sort of cultural um, schism, I suppose, and that helps to feed into it. That's just something that I've learnt over the past week as I've been doing my story. But, um, ma'am, just in the back row, second back row, you wanted to make a point. And then I'd like to get some more comments from the audience because we're already running out of time and I'm sure that many of you have some comments and questions. Yes. Am I on? Can you hear me? Go for it. Yeah. Hello. My name is Barbara, and I think this dialogue is really good, but I feel sometimes the victim of crime is ignored. Mm -hmm. For instance, I've been a victim of crime. I was in a post office just mailing something, and someone came in with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed at my face. So it was highly traumatic. And what I found the worst thing is that I had to go to court and give my testimony of what I saw. So I gave my name and where I lived to the perpetrators that were sitting there. So that was very traumatic for me. And I think sometimes in a dialogue like this, victims never get a, a chance to speak. Like the Four Corners was excellent, but I didn't hear from one victim. Not one person uh, said anything about how, how they were traumatized by 
a young boy, as okay. sad as it is. I mean, some people might argue that that's a, a separate issue from what was actually going on in the appropriate treatment of those young people. But as a victim, could you tell us now, what was the effect of that holdup on you? How, how did that affect your life? Well, I got a little bit agoraphobic because I was afraid to leave in case they tracked me down and found out, you know, that I was, because of my evidence, they were put to jail. Hmm. Now, did I want them to go to jail? Or did I want them to be set free and say, don't do that again? I mean... So what did you... So you wanted them to go to jail? You wanted them yeah. to be punished? I wanted them to be sure. punished because uh, it was... I don't know how many people sitting here have had a gun pointed at their face. I've had a gun pointed at my face and it was, it was pretty terrifying and it affected me for... I got a little bit agoraphobic for a while. Anyone else been the victim of a crime here who might have something to add about this? Who would like to talk about what that experience was and, and what it meant to, to them? You're moving your hand very much in the front row, so I feel like I should go to you, sir. I'm um, self-praise is no recommendation. I'm not here to praise what I've been through, but I'm, um, there's not many of me left. I'm a H-Division rock breaker. In 74, I went to prison and got sentenced to three months imprisonment, convicted by a racist jury. Um, I'm of Greek descent with a big, long Greek surname. And I believe that had the jury had uh, a Papadopoulos, a Kononopoulos, etc., in the jury, I would have been acquitted. But to cut a long story short, I was sentenced to three months, 12 months imprisonment with a minimum of three months. And when I went in, we had a little bit of a jack-up about the food. So for that, they sent me to a place called Haste Division, 74, and they wanted me to break rocks. And they ran into my cell for three mornings in a row with battens and broke bones in my hand, battered me ribs, the whole lot. It was horrific. I was a 19-year-old boy, I'd never been in boys' homes. Um, so do you feel like you were the victim of a crime then? Well, that's a, well, that's is a that crime. They were monsters back in them days, okay. the, the prison officers. Mm -hmm. um, kids, boys, men were flogged, um, you know, uh, to break rocks and to, to have that put on you. And they, presumably they created no, monsters, nothing you know? ever happened to those prison officers who no, broke your hand. No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> Uh, 80-something 80, 80 percent of, of people who broke rocks in haste division released uh, committed murders, you know, like as Father Brosnan, going back a little bit longer than Peter, uh, Father Brosnan said they come in for uh, bike theft, stealing motor uh, bicycles and, and become murderers, you know? I'd just like to stick with the theme of the victims for a while because I'd be interested to hear if anyone else had an experience with that. James, sure. Yes, yeah, please. And yeah, thank you very much. And that's why I want to expand on that theme a little bit because... And I think, I just want to, we can. first of all, acknowledge it and say it's yeah. terrible. I'm really sorry. Um, and secondly, my motivation for getting involved in working with former prisoners and trying to, you know, perhaps agitate reform somehow or be part of reform in criminal justice is that, and probably the reason why we're 
do focus on offenders so much is that I think we are all motivated to find out why this happens and find solutions. And I think it's not an excuse for why victims do get overlooked sometimes, but I think it's, it's a natural thing that we should, we're doing, and I think it's a good thing. While I'm really sorry what happens to you, I think it'll probably be the case that we will focus on offenders um, until we solve some of these problems. And, and yeah. can I just say, when I went to the court, and then I went to the, and then I went to the victims of crime court, I had a very good judge, so I did get compensated by money for the trauma that I went through. So it's a very good system for the victim. Can I just ask as well, did you want your, I mean, presumably you wanted the person who perpetrated this crime against well, you never to do it again? They were repeat offenders. Right. So, so your hope would have been that they wouldn't do it again. Well, but I, had a, I, I never had dealings with the police in my life before. Yeah. Never. And so I got to know the detectives and they worked really hard and they, they were very courteous to me. I don't know, maybe because I'm a white female, I don't know. Um, but when they were in court, one of the questions was, was I led on by the police in my, yep. my testimony? Yep. And I, I felt really undermined then that what I was saying wasn't the truth, but I, I, the police were very good to me. Is there anyone else who was a victim who'd like to add their experience? Is that you then? I don't want to talk about the specifics of having been a victim of crime, but I do want to say as someone who has been a victim of crime and as someone who um, has worked a lot with women who's experienced crime and someone who has a family member, as James and others know, who has been in jail, the thing that terrifies me is that what we increasingly say to people is you shouldn't be violent, we send them to jail, and all the things that we tell people that they shouldn't do to their partner or to strangers, we do to them worse and in more extended ways in prison. So my concern is that the myth is that prison is rehabilitation, but jail breaks people in extraordinary ways intentionally and deliberately and violence is used to break people in jails so to do that to someone and then say and don't do that in the community that you win when you're biggest and harshest in a prison and that's usually the jailers sometimes the prisons prisoners and then say don't do the same thing at home when you're the biggest one it doesn't work we see that so what i see is that there's a myth about addressing violence through jailing people, but we're just creating more violence. And we're not addressing why people behave in the way they behave, and we're not addressing the systemic um, disadvantages and the systemic um, dis discrimination, which means some people, other people, sent to jail. Not all criminals go to jail. We've got about 10 minutes left. Thank you. We've got about 10 minutes left. I did just want to hear from um, the cast member of the chat who's in the back. I, I missed your name during the performance, I apologise. Uh, my name's Arthur. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm an ex too, but I've been out of prison for 33 years this year. Um, I'm a criminologist, by the way. I always throw that in because I'm not just an ex-crim with an opinion. I'm a qualified one. Um, <laughs> No, I say that very seriously, very seriously. But, you know, I've been to a lot of forums like this and one stage I thought I'm not going to any more forums like this because they all, they all agree, they're all nice people. Like the audience are all nice, they're so affirming. I, I, I actually played the role of the bad guy, I didn't want him to get out. 
there's all this, it's almost treacly, sweet and nice. But the reality is, I'm still fucking stigmatised after 33 years. Like, am I rehabilitated? I hear that. People ask all the time, rehabilitation. I say, what the fuck are you talking about? Rehabilitation, what, what the hell is that? How, how can you get rehabilitated in prison, for goodness sakes? Whether it was 30 years ago or, or yesterday, the fundamentals are the same. It, it, it doesn't help people who are already damaged. And I'm damaged. And it's taken me so many years to actually understand that, how damaged I am. Two friggin' failed marriages. Um, you know, a, a string of damage. And I kind of get so frustrated and I think, what do you want from us? What do you want from me? Uh, what do you think that you... Do you think that you owe anything to no, society? No, absolutely not. What do I owe to do society? Do you think that society owes anything Bloody to you? Bloody it does. Do you know what it owes me? The right to be a fully-fledged fucking citizen. Sorry. No, don't clap. It's not about clapping. This is the reality. And this is me. I'm edumacated. You know, I've got a family. I walked out of jail and I had a lot of support. Maybe that's one of the reasons I never went back. But there are people I know who are good friends of mine, and I'm an emotional goose too, but I've almost got to the stage, honestly, where I've given up. Short of a miracle, they're stuffed. They're fucked. And, and so today, the only energy I have left and will is to try and invest it into the lives of young people and Jesuit social services, and I say this, and I'll say it in this forum too, they did research which said it all. 50% of all Victorian prisoners derive from 6% of frigging postcodes. If we as a society know that, and the politicians bloody will know that, why don't they go into those postcodes and capture those little kids, those little boys in particular, before they end up in juvenile detentions and ultimately in adult prison? I'm sick and tired of the process. I wish I could just change my life and go and do something else, but I can't because I'm sort of one of them too. Anyway, don't clap because I didn't get up to say that to clap, but I do get frustrated with this stuff. Thanks, Arthur. I'm and not going to clap, but I don't want us to forget about the girls either because women are the girls and women are the fastest growing segment of prison population, not only in this country but in the Western world and particularly Aboriginal girls and women, and they are forgotten about. And yes, if we know the postcodes like we do in Queensland, that's what we need to be sorting out. But look, we don't. And this stuff about do I deserve to be punished, don't I deserve to be punished, am I a criminal, am I not? Yeah, I was in prison, so therefore I was a criminal. Yeah, I'm a lawyer now. So where, where do you fit me? Where do you fit old mate over here? Where do you fit us in your thinking? Because you're many things in your lives too, just as we're many things and have experienced many things in our lives too. But we can't forget about the women. Because those women, over 85% of those women have children that are left behind and then they're sucked in through the vacuum cleaner of trauma through so-called child protection, where we know Aboriginal kids are just removed at a massive rate than any other child that's living in poverty, and then who gets pipelined into the youth prison and into the adult prison. It all serves a purpose and that is to 
socially control all of you out here because you don't want it happening to you so you stand back and allow it happening to us and Aboriginal people, people who live in poverty. And it's time that we cross those borders, so to speak, invisible borders of your whiteness and privilege to actually move forward and call out to close them down. I don't agree with any type of violence at all. And I'm sorry to hear about your story of that violence because that's horrendous violence. And as an abolitionist and abolitionists, we don't agree with prisons. We want them all shut down, but we don't, you know, accept anyone who's going to violate someone else. And there needs to be something else in society for people who, bring, who are violent to others. So Debbie, and so let's think outside the bars and not just one replacement to a prison because that's where we get bogged down. Okay, so I was just about to ask you to expand further on your, your ideas of if we get rid of prison, um, where do we go? And where do we go to satisfy the needs of people who have been victims of crime, who do feel the need to see that perpetrator punished for one, and then the issues of community safety, and then the issues of rehabilitation. How do we yeah, go, go about that? You're doing the same thing. You're saying offender, victim, like we're two separate entities. Mm -hmm. We're actually not. The high majority of women in prison are victims of horrendous <laughs> violence, absolute horrendous violence from a very young age. You know, over 89% have experienced rape and sexual abuse from a very young age and multiple times before they even hit the prison gates. And the way that they deal with that pain is to self-medicate, which what we were talking about a minute ago. And of course, if you self-medicate with illegal drugs, you're gonna collide with the cops and you're gonna end up criminalized and imprisoned. So we've gotta stop the violence in our communities. So it's about how we want a community to be instead of just accepting prisons have to be there. Prisons don't have to be a part of that. It's how do we rearrange our society. And it's going to be very difficult because capitalism, which has captured us all, and once again, property is more valued than people. Mm -hmm. It's how we, how we view our world and how we want our world to be. And, and it can start just with your neighbours and the street that you live in or the unit block that you live in and negotiate those relationships and how you interact differently, how you resolve conflict for example. So just on a very practical note and to wrap up because we have gone over time because we started a bit late and um, got about two minutes left I'm afraid. Um, but for the lady up here who was the victim of a terrible crime, um, she's only been the victim, she's never been the perpetrator. So how does she get justice and how do we treat the, purple, the, the person who did that to her if we're to get rid of prisons? What should we be doing to or with the perpetrator of her crime? Well, in an ideal world, that one, we wouldn't have guns, would we? Well, let's just forget about that. <laughs> no, we like, no, well, no, I don't think we can forget about but that. I we think have that... to stop. Guns have to be destroyed from whether we have them or cops have them or the army has them. Guns have got to go. Okay. Weapons have to go. So that's a that's a separate and bigger issue. So let's just well, assume that... Well, I think we're talking about a huge issue. <laughs> we are. I can't, I can't say I'm going to resolve this issue with the woman here if we don't live in the society that I'm thinking about. So one, we wouldn't have guns and so that wouldn't happen. But all right, so the guy's got a gun or the, the few men and they've come to rob the place. And uh, it's a robbery, yeah? Yeah. So, you know, what I would be doing, of course, they have to be removed from society, but prison makes them more violent. And actually, prison, 
you know, you can get, you can be like a big fish in a little pond in a prison, you know, mm-hmm. and get lots of slaps on the back. But I mean, really, they're little fish in a big pond out of here. And so it's about, you know, the underlying issues. Why are they robbing that place? I would want to know why they're robbing the place. What are they after? You know, obviously, it's great fear to get money. Was it about? Yeah. And so money becomes the object. You know, that's the priority for them. Um, I, I can only imagine that it wasn't a priority to hurt anybody, but they did um, because it was about getting money. So, my, for example, my mate who runs a bank, I used to always say to her, if arm robbers come running in there, just hit the deck and give them the fucking money because they're only there for the money. And she did get, they did get robbed once and she remembered me saying that and they did all drop to the floor and just said, take the money and go and no one got hurt mm-hmm. and no one had a gun shoved in their face. But it's about that understanding, unpacking and try to do some resolution between the woman there and the man or the men who shoved the gun in her face, whether those parties can come in a, into a safe environment and have a conversation. Like what it meant for you to be that victim and how horrendous it was and for them to understand what the fuck they've done to you and those other people because I can imagine they would have no idea because they were probably on drugs, wanted money to buy more drugs. Okay. I'm just going to go to John for the final word because it's a Saturday night and we've been talking for an hour and we're already 15 minutes over over time. I'll be be really quick. You know, I've I've got a thing. I just went to court the other week with my son. Um, He had some alcohol stuff and he he reacts with violence and, you know, he... he, um, he bashed some couple of blokes on the bus, you know, and we went to court and it was, and I thought, how can he make amends, you know, he was going get, to get locked up over it because there were serious charges, you know, and I mentioned to the magistrate, you know, is there any way, possible way that he can meet up with the victims? You know, because the victims are, are harmed and they live with that, and, you know, and I understand that because I, I suffered a lot of guilt and shame over victims that I had harmed, you know, I ended up robbing houses when I was 11 and then ended up robbing banks. You know, so things change. I harm people. One lady, you know, sent to me in prison, you know, about compensation. She's never worked in a bank again. That affected her family and everything like that. And I felt good and changed. So I mentioned in court, you know, to the magistrate, is there any way that my son can meet up with the victims if they're willing, because the victims need to be willing too, and to try and set things right between themselves, you know, and um, Did that and, that, and that's happening on the fifteenth of August. Mm-hmm. And so, you feel that that as some, you feel that that would be the best uh, thing for him to for him and the victims too, because yeah. they were hurt really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and I found it's about healing in both both parties. Healing. Uh, that's, a, victims, that's a word we haven't discussed that, this evening. Yeah, healing. You know, mm. it's about healing and feeling good about themselves and letting go. Because mm. for me, I've had to let go of my past. Mm. You know, and I'm really grateful of the life that I live today because I created hope from other people because hope, hearing other people's experience that something could be different and for, oh I'm getting soupy you know, like, and for me I like me today there's still that little bit you know, I'll let someone else talk well, there is one, one, one real glaring issue here is the fact that over many years, of, you know, the last 10 years or 15 years, uh, perhaps 20, all our community centres in Victoria have been closed down. And as a direct result, the young ones, white and black, 
that do access our community, had accessed our community, that need to buy a workshop. Because these places have been closed, uh, there's nothing for people, like young ones up in Horsham to do, to gravitate towards. To, and, and so we need to, uh, to refund that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and somebody like me, I'll have a talk with, uh, with me, old mate, the Premier, and, uh, and, I'll, uh, and, I'll, uh, and I'll tweak it to the, uh, the possibility of let's get back to basics. We need our workshops open in all our small communities in the state of Victoria to open and showcase to other states that this is possibly a way to go. Magistrates are dying to be able to send somebody to a community centre of honesty and integrity instead of sending them to jail. I'm already talking with the Melbourne, with the magistrates, uh, Fanny, Mr Fanning in the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. Uh, the best thing to happen in Collingwood Fitzroy since sliced bread that we've got this. And he, he loves the idea of if I had started the Nindabaya workshop in Melbourne, been allowed to be taken seriously enough by the system, uh, by uh, Dickie Wynne and etc., and the Yarra Council uh, to, 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 to reopen the new modern Nindabaya workshop and that. I could, you know, uh, head people off at the, at the pass. Our organisation can do this well, and spread it into our, our you know, Horsham, Shepparton and Marupna and uh, Echuca and all that. You know, we need this to happen again. Funding needs to go into our community centres. Well, I reckon if anyone can do that uh, to Daniel, Dan Andrews' ear, I reckon it's probably you, Jack. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And look, um, just to go back to what John was saying um, about us needing hope, we do have to rush it up wrap it up this evening but hearing other people's experiences as you say is really fundamental to not only improving our society but actually understanding our society which is the very basis of uh, of improving our society so can I thank those of you who have contributed this evening um, the, your experiences and particularly our panelists Jack Charles, Peter Norton, Debbie Kilroy, Susan Shepherd, James Brennan and thank you very much to all of you for coming out we've run out of time thank you very much